That song talks about the kingdom, that this is the kingdom. And we're going to talk about the kingdom, but we're also going to talk about what precedes the kingdom. If you need a title on this morning, it's No Cross, No Kingdom. No Cross, No Kingdom. If you would, turn with me to Matthew 16. Matthew chapter 16, starting at verse 13. And just so you know, I'm reading from the New King James Version. Matthew chapter 16. Mm-hmm. We're going to start at verse 13 and we're going to read down to verse 27. It says, when Jesus came into the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, saying, Who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? So they said, Some say John the Baptist, some Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, But who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered and said, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus answered and said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona. For flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I also say to you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. And I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Then he commanded his disciples that they should tell no one that he was the Christ. From that time, Jesus began to show to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised the third day. Then Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall not happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan, you are an offense to me. For you are not mindful of the things of God, but the things of men. Then Jesus said to his disciples, If anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what profit is it to a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? For the Son of Man will come in the glory of his fathers with his angels, And then he will reward each according to his works. So again, no cross, no kingdom. Now there's a whole lot in that passage of scripture, but we're going to focus on two places. Verse 21, where it says, From that time Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised the third day. And then we're going to focus on verses 24 through 27, where Jesus talks about the fact that if you're going to follow him, you must take up your cross. So you guys know, if you've been around me anytime, we got a lot of scriptures, but it probably got more than I normally would do. But here's the reason. With the help of the Holy Spirit, my hope is to convey to you the importance of the cross. Not only for our salvation, but for everyday living. Some of this comes from the teaching that I gave to Unshakable a couple Wednesdays ago. But there's going to be a whole lot more that I'm going to add to that. So what I want to do is begin by looking at the gospel of the kingdom. So real quick, let's go to Matthew chapter 3. Matthew 3. Verses 1 and 2, we have here John the Baptist. He's come on the scene. And he has an announcement to make. It says, In those days John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea and saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Or it's within reach. It's near. And so now go with me to Mark. Because Jesus soon followed Mark, not Mark, John. 
Mark chapter 1, verses 14 and 15. John the Baptist, of course, was known as the forerunner of Christ. He was the one that paved the way for Christ. But soon after John went into prison, then Jesus breaks out in his ministry. So in verse 14 of Mark 1, it says, Now after John was put in prison, Jesus came to Galilee preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God and saying, The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. So what exactly is the gospel of the kingdom? The gospel in the Greek, there's a word that's pronounced euangelion. And it says, and it means good or glad tidings, ultimately the good news. The word kingdom is the Greek word basilia, and it means royal power, kingship, dominion, rule. Now, if you're like me, when I grew up in church and I heard about the gospel, I always thought it was a New Testament thing. I always thought that it broke out starting with the book of Matthew and going from there to the book of Revelation, that's when the gospel came about. But in all actuality, the gospel was spoken of in the Old Testament. This was something that was familiar to the Jews. They had heard something about a gospel. Go with me to the book of Isaiah, chapter 40. Now keep in mind how we defined the word gospel. We said good tidings or glad tidings or good news. So Isaiah chapter 40, verse 9. Isaiah 40. Yes. Of course, the Isaiah is a prophet of God, and he makes this declaration or this announcement. He says, O Zion, you who bring good tidings, get up into the high mountain, O Jerusalem. You who bring good tidings, lift up your voice with strength. Lift it up. Be not afraid. Say to the cities of Judah, behold your God. So twice in this verse we see this phrase, good tidings. Stay in Isaiah, but go to chapter 52. Isaiah 52. Verse 7. It says, How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news. Who proclaims peace, who brings glad tidings of good things, who proclaims salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. So we have here another reference to good tidings, glad tidings, good news. Now go with me to Isaiah 61. Isaiah 61, verse 1. It says, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to preach good tidings to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. Now, that passage of Scripture probably sounds familiar. Because Jesus used this scripture to help launch his ministry. Turn to Luke chapter 4. Luke chapter 4. It says, so he came to Nazareth, speaking of Christ, where he had been brought up. And as his custom was, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and stood up to read. 
and he was handed the book of the prophet Isaiah. And when he had opened the book, he found the place where it was written. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. Then he closed the book and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all who were in the synagogue were fixed on him. So think about this. Now, this was a common thing to occur for a rabbi or a teacher or someone like that to show up and break the scriptures down or to read the scriptures to the Jews. It was Jesus' custom to do the same thing. But after he does this, he pauses. And every eye is on him because they probably had heard this read before. But now Jesus reads it and they're wondering, okay, what is he going to say or do next? And look at what he says. And he began to say to them in verse 21, Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. So why do I point this out? One of the things that I want you to understand is that when Jesus came the first time, there was already this great anticipation that a Messiah was coming. There was already this expectancy that someone, a deliverer, was coming to the Jewish nation, to Israel, to deliver them from Roman oppression. This was not new. This was expected. So now Jesus says that, and you can expect if you read further, there's a lot of talking back and forth and wondering, wait a minute, is, is he the one? But wait a minute, that's Mary's son, that's Joseph's son. Isn't he from Nazareth? Does any good thing come out of Nazareth? But Jesus proclaims that this spirit is fulfilled in your hearing. In other words, the kingdom of God is here. That's what he was announcing. So what is a definition of the kingdom, or the gospel of the kingdom? So the gospel of the kingdom is the good news, as proclaimed by a herald, someone like Pastor Harold, of the coming of a benevolent king in which the rule or reign of Almighty God is restored in the earth at Jerusalem. Now, we're going to look a little bit at what does that look like. Turn with me to, back to the book of Isaiah, but go to Isaiah chapter 9. Because what I want you to see is what the Jewish nation was expecting. Isaiah 9, verse 6 and 7. Very familiar passage of Scripture. It says, for unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder, and his name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. Upon the throne of David and over his kingdom to order it and establish it with judgment and justice. From that time forward, even forever, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. This scripture speaks of a time to come when God's kingdom will be established in the earth. Let's look a little bit more at what they expected to see when the Messiah showed up. Go to Isaiah 65. Isaiah 65, verse 17. Now listen to what, when Christ establishes his kingdom and his rule over all the earth, what it's going to look like. It says, for behold, I create new heavens and a new earth. 
and the former shall not be remembered or come to mind. But be glad and rejoice forever in what I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem as a rejoicing and her people a joy. I will rejoice in Jerusalem and joy in my people. The voice of weeping shall no longer be heard in her, nor the voice of crying. No more shall an infant from there live but a few days, nor an old man who has not fulfilled his days. For the child shall die 100 years old, but the sinner being 100 years old shall be cursed. They shall build houses and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and eat their fruit. They shall not build and another inhabit. They shall not plant and another eat. For as the days of a tree, so shall the days of my people and my elect shall long enjoy the work of their hands. They shall not labor in vain, nor bring forth children for trouble. For they shall be the descendants of the blessed of the Lord and their offspring with them. It shall come to pass that before they call, I will answer. And while they are still speaking, I will hear. The wolf and the lamb shall feed together. The lion shall eat straw like the ox, and dust shall be the serpent's food. They shall not hurt nor destroy in all my holy mountain, says the Lord. So this basically prophesies a paradise. A time when Messiah sets up his throne, Israel will rule, and they will enjoy great prosperity and blessing. That's what they were looking for when Jesus showed up on the scene. As a Jewish person in the time of Christ, this all sounds great. They believed that a time was coming when Messiah could, would come to restore the kingdom to Israel and deliver them from Roman rule. They were looking for this Messiah. In fact, during that time period, false messiahs had risen. So this was what was going on at that time. Now, Jesus was the Messiah that they were looking for. But when it was revealed to his disciples that he was the one, look at his instructions to them. Let's go back to Matthew chapter 16. And I want you to focus on verse 20. This is kind of curious. Jesus is going about proclaiming the good news. He's performing miracles and signs and wonders. And in Matthew 16, we read earlier where he asked them, who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? And they tell who they think, or what the people are saying. Then he asked them, who do you say? And Peter speaks up and says, thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. In other words, that word Christ is the word Messiah. You're the Messiah the son of the living God. After Jesus pronounces a blessing over Peter and says that the church will be built on this rock, who Jesus is, in verse 20 he tells them, shh, don't tell anybody. Don't tell anybody. Now why would Jesus do that? Well, this goes back to what I was talking about earlier, there was this great anticipation that when Messiah come, he would set up his kingdom and the Jews would once again rule in the whole earth. That was their expectancy. In fact, if you look in John chapter 6, you'll see that after Jesus was doing these miracles and things and his reputation began to spread, they tried to make him king. They tried to force him, but he escaped from them. Now, why was this? Well, here is what it was. Jesus understood that before the kingdom, there must first be the cross. That's what they did not understand. That's what they did not see. That before glory, there must be suffering. And that's one of the major reasons, along with others, that they rejected him. They didn't understand. Even his disciples did not understand. We're going to look at that. There was a price to be paid. 
God couldn't just make things perfect again with the snap of his finger. We all as human beings, when things go wrong, we want God to fix it. We want him to fix it yesterday. But that's not normally how God works. And the reason why he couldn't just snap his fingers is because in the garden back in Genesis chapter 3, the devil didn't steal the authority from Adam and Eve. Adam gave it away. He gave it away. And so God then understood that, yes, I'm going to take it back, but there's a way it has to be done. And here we go to the cross. Look at this. I want to look at how we can see the disciples did not get this at all. Right there in Matthew chapter 16, after Jesus says in verse 21, from that time Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised the third day. Jesus is telling them, I'm going to suffer, y'all. I'm going to Jerusalem, and they're going to hang me on the cross. I'm going to die, but then I'm going to be raised the third day. Look at Peter's reaction to what Jesus says. Then Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Can you imagine having the nerve to rebuke the master? And look at Jesus' response. Get thee behind me, Satan. You are an offense to me, for you are not mindful of the things of God, but the things of men. Peter did not get it. And I don't think any of the other disciples did as well. Go to John chapter 18, because Peter going to show out again. John 18. Verse 10. Now in John 18, Jesus is being arrested. And he knows that this is the path that he must go. But in the midst of Jesus being arrested, if you read in the other Gospels, they talk about this person that took a sword and cut off one of the soldiers' ear. And you wonder, okay, who was that? Well, John tells us who that was. Verse 10, then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup which my father has given me? Peter still didn't get it. He was ready to fight to the death. The problem was it wasn't his death that was required. It was Jesus' death. And remember, Jesus himself said, you don't take my life, I lay it down. Jesus was voluntarily submitting himself to death because it was necessary for him to go to the cross before he came into his kingdom. Now, how great was this price? How much did Jesus suffer? Now, I don't know if we can ever know just how much he suffered, but I want to get at least an idea of how he suffered. Go to Luke chapter 22. Luke 22. Verse 39. Jesus has not been arrested yet, but he knows his time is near. Judas Iscariot has already left to betray him. And so now he's in the garden. Verse 39, coming out, he went to the Mount of Olives as he was accustomed, and his disciples also followed him. When he came to the place, he said to them, pray that you may not enter into temptation. And he was withdrawn from them about a stone's throw, and he knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if it is your will, 
take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Then an angel appeared to him from heaven, strengthening him. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly. Then his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. Now, there's something very interesting here. I remember reading this many times before and thinking, man, his sweat beads must have been large. Until I found out that there is actually a medical condition that you can suffer from where you sweat actual real drops of blood. It's the condition called, and I'm going to probably mess this up, hematidrosis. H-E-M-A-T-I-D-R-O-S-I-S. There are people, few, but there are individuals who, when especially under great stress, can sweat real drops of blood. Go to Matthew chapter 27. Matthew 27, verse 45. We're going to look at here why I believe that he was actually sweating his blood. In Matthew 27, verse 45, he's hanging on the cross now. And it says in verse 45, Now from the sixth hour until the ninth hour, there was darkness over all the land. The sixth hour was considered about 12 noon in the daytime. The ninth hour about 3 o'clock. So it is dark at noon. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, there is great debate about what was actually going on at this last moment of Jesus' life. There are those who believe that the father at this moment turned his back on his son. Others do not believe this. But I say regardless as to which one is true, at that very moment, Jesus felt forsaken by the father at this very moment. Now, why is that? All of us have been children at some point or another. And I remember when I was growing up, if I knew I did something that I was not supposed to do, and I was in danger of being found out, I wanted to be nowhere near my parents because I felt the weight of it and I knew they would be able to look me in the face and see, okay, what did you do? <laughs> because what I'm dealing with is the weight and the guilt of what I did wrong. Now go with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Verse 21. Because it says here, Paul, speaking to the church at Corinth, referencing Christ's ministry, says about Christ, says, For he, the Father, made him, Christ, who knew no sin, to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. I'm going to read that one more time. For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Now let's get a little background here. In some of your Bibles, it may say, Instead of he made him to be sin, it may say he made him to be a sin offering. Or it may be a note if you have a study Bible and it will say sin offering. And what happens, what, what happened 
in the Old Testament times, especially on the Day of Atonement, when, the, when they were sacrificing according to the way that God had given it to them to do, the priest, when making the sacrifice, they laid hands or took their hands and laid it on the sacrifice. I'm going to use this as a sacrifice. And what that represented was the guilt of all of the people was transferred from the people to the sacrifice. Therefore, the sin offering. The scripture says, for he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us. So at that moment, when Jesus was hanging on the cross and he felt forsaken by the Father, I believe at that moment, the guilt of the whole world, from Adam to the very last person that will ever be created, was transferred to Jesus at that very moment. So whether or not the Father turned his back on him, because there are those who believe, because God cannot look upon sin, he may have turned his back. I don't totally agree with that, but it doesn't matter. At that moment, Jesus felt forsaken because he took my sin. He took your sin upon his shoulders. Because sin divides us or separates us from God. For a believer, when we get caught up in sin, we feel out of fellowship. We feel like we've lost our connection. Now, God has said, I'll never leave you nor forsake you. But we feel that. Especially if you understand the fact that our God, our Father, who loves us very much, is also a holy God. I know there are times when I get in trouble with my wife. I, I'm like, okay, I, I, what do I got to do? So I got to make this right. <laughs> I got to make this right. But that's how we feel when we sin. Now imagine Jesus, who knew no sin, bearing the sins of the whole world. Why? Hebrews tells us, for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. Bearing the sin of the whole world. What was that joy? Us. And not only him receiving a kingdom, but us receiving a kingdom with him. But he understood that before he could have that moment, he must first endure the cross. Now, what exactly did the cross accomplish? What did it do for us? Go to Colossians chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1. We're going to start at verse 15. Paul, talking about Jesus, says that he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things consist. And he is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he may have the preeminence. For it pleased the Father that in him all the fullness should dwell. And by him to reconcile all things to himself, by him, whether things on earth or things in heaven, having made peace, how? Through the blood of his cross. So the cross of Christ reconciles heaven with earth. But it doesn't stop there. 
Let's go read, keep reading in verse 21. Paul goes on to say, And you, who once were alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now he has reconciled in the body of his flesh through death to represent you holy and blameless and above reproach in his sight. So the blood of the cross reconciles us to God. But I want to go a little bit deeper here. Keep your fingers there in Colossians 1. Go to Ephesians chapter 2. Let's start at verse 14. I don't think I gave you these scriptures, Richard. (laughs) It says, for he himself is our peace, speaking of Christ, who has made both one. And he's talking about Jew and Gentile. And has broken down the middle wall of separation, having abolished in his flesh the enmity, that is, the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so as to create in himself one new man from the two, thus making peace. And that he might reconcile them both to God in one body through the cross, thereby putting to death the enmity. Now I want to use an illustration. I want to ask my brother Mark to come up. Would you come up here, Mark? And I'm going to ask my son, Reg, to come up. I didn't tell either one that I was going to do this. But I want to paint a picture here. He knew I was going to pick on him. (laughs) Now let's read this scripture again. So it's Pretend, just pretend, I'm Jesus. Just pretend. Says, for it says, for he himself is our peace, who has made both one, Jew, Gentile, and has broken down the having abolished in contained in ordinances, so as Jew. And that he might reconcile them both. Gentile, one new man, reconcile them both to God through the blood of the cross. Do you see the picture? The cross. But we can go a little bit further than that. So to create in himself one new man from the two. White. Black. Come on, y'all. Y'all know what time we're living in right now. I know you're not a woman, but I'm going to go with Female, male. You plan your wife right now. Do you understand the necessity of the cross? Thank you, guys. Y'all can go sit there. Now, why do I point this out? The times we're living in right now, there is much unrest in our nation. Between black, between white, Where I'm from in Chicago, there's a lot of tension between black and Hispanics. Right now, there's a whole lot of anti-Semitism going on right now. There's all kind of divisions that are occurring in our nation. And with divisions and all of the trouble that is being, that's going on in our country, there are a lot of people who are rising up proposing solutions to it. You got groups like Antifa and BLM, and you could go to politics with Republicans and Democrats. But let me tell you one thing. There's only going to be one thing 
that can fix what's going on in our nation, and that is the cross of Jesus Christ. There is no other solution. There is no other solution. It will not be fixed. I'm telling you now. Do not buy the lies that you are hearing on television. I don't care who it's coming from, and I don't care what your political affiliation is. It does not matter. There's only one fix. We're talking about the necessity of the cross. Do you know why God allows all of this nonsense to go on? What he wants to do is what he's hoping for, wishing for, is that we will get so fed up with the nonsense that we'll know and understand and see there's only one person we can turn to, and that's Jesus. Let me clue you in on what's really going on when you see these different groups rising up and you see politicians who are rising up. It doesn't matter what, I don't care what your party is. I don't care what your color is. I don't care what, which way you lean politically. All of them are after one thing, and that's power and influence. That's what this is about. That is why it is so important that we as believers proclaim the good news of the gospel of the kingdom because that is the only solution. Okay, now I'm off my soapbox. <laughs> Go to Colossians chapter 2. Go back to Colossians. But this time we're in chapter 2. Verse 13. Paul, referring to the saints who were at Colossus, he says, And you, being dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he has made alive together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses, having wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us, which was contrary to us. And he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to his cross. Having disarmed principalities and powers, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in it, triumphing over the evil one in the cross. First Corinthians tells us that the rulers of this age, referring to the devil and his cohorts, if they had understood what was really going on, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. As I shared with the folks at Unshakable a couple Wednesdays ago, after his death day one, they were partying. Day two comes, they're partying. But on day three, they started hearing this rumbling. They started hearing this shaking. And they were wondering, okay, we, I know we've been partying for a couple days, but are we losing our minds? But what they didn't understand was that on the third day, Jesus rose from the grave. And get this, the party that was going on in hell ceased, but a new party started in heaven. They didn't know, they didn't understand. God had prophesied it. Back in Genesis chapter 3.15, he said the seed of the woman, Christ, would bruise your head while you bruise his heel. God had already prophesied his defeat, but he just didn't get it. Now after, well, I got one more point because here's something that's very important. Go to Hebrews chapter 2. Hebrews chapter 2. Another reason why Jesus had to take on the cross. Hebrews chapter 2, we're going to start at verse 10. It 
It says, for it was fitting for him. Talking of, no, actually, I'm going to start at verse 9. I'm sorry. Verse 9. It says, but we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels, for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that he, by the grace of God, might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting for him, for whom are all things and by whom are all things, in bringing many sons to glory, to make the captain of their salvation perfect through sufferings. For both he who sanctifies and those who are being sanctified are all of one. For which reason he is not ashamed to call them brethren, saying, I will declare your name to my brethren. In the midst of the assembly, I will sing praise to you. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, here am I and the children whom God has given me. Inasmuch then as the children have partaken of flesh and blood, he himself likewise shared in the same, that through death he might destroy him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and release those who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. For indeed he does not give aid to angels, but he does give aid to the seed of Abraham. That's us, y'all. Therefore, In all things, he had to be made like his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For in that he himself has suffered, being tempted, he is able to aid those who are tempted. Jesus was made the captain of our salvation for the express purpose of him being our faithful high priest who understands what it's like when we are tempted. He understands what it is like when we get weak. He understands what it is like when we face things that we think are impossible to overcome. And the Bible says he is able to come alongside of you and give you strength. He told, possible, uh, he told the apostle Paul that in your weakness, my strength is made perfect. Paul's reaction was, well, then I rejoice in being weak. I'm letting that sink in because we, we don't like to rejoice in being weak, especially men. We don't like being perceived as weak. But before God, Paul says rejoice in being weak because when you're weak in his presence, you're made strong. You are made strong. As high priest, Jesus is our advocate before the Father. He's the one who makes intercession for us. Now, think about this. If you're a person who was, let's say you were addicted to drugs, and God has delivered you from drugs. Now, I've never been addicted to drugs. I can intercede for you. But a person who's been addicted to drugs, who's been delivered, can really intercede for you. Because they know where you were. They understand what you're going through. Jesus, who took on all of our sins, all of our infirmities, all of our weaknesses, knows how to intercede for us. He is a faithful high priest. And he had to take this path. He had to take the path of the cross so that he could become our faithful high priest. Now after Jesus' resurrection, Jesus spent 40 days with the disciples before he ascended to heaven. But guess what? Earlier I mentioned that the Jews had this great expectation that the Messiah was coming. And once he came, he would establish the kingdom of God in the earth with Israel ruling the whole earth. We'll go to Acts chapter 1. Acts chapter 1. Because even after his resurrection, they still had that expectation. Probably more so. Because, man, he overcame death, hell, and the grave. So it should be easy for him to establish his kingdom now. Verse 6 in Acts chapter 1. It says, Therefore, when they had come together, they asked him, saying, Lord, will you at this time 
restored the kingdom to Israel. And he said to them, it is not for you to know times or seasons which the Father has put in his own authority. But you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. So let me translate what Jesus said to them. No, now is not the time. Because there was still something that the disciples had missed that Jesus had shared with them before he died. Go back to Matthew chapter 16. We read in verse 21 where Jesus says that he must suffer at the hands of the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the chief priests, be killed and rise on the third day. Go down to verse 24. Because it wasn't just Jesus who had a cross to take up. Verse 24. Then Jesus said to his disciples, If anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Not only was Jesus to bear his cross, but they had a cross to bear. And we do as well. The difference is, Jesus, when he died on his cross, he secured the kingdom and its promises. For us, when we take up our cross... It enables us to receive the kingdom and its promises. When we get saved, we not only receive the kingdom and its promises, but we gain a share in what I call the family business. Turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Let's go back there. I know you guys are probably thinking, if I knew I was going to be running through the scriptures like this, I'd have worn my gym shoes. Second <laughs> Corinthians 5, starting at verse 18. It says, Now all things are of God, who has reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. That is that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not imputing their trespasses to them and has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ. As though God were pleading through us, we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. God has given to us, those of us who have been reconciled to him, now he has given to us the ministry of reconciliation. And the ministry of reconciliation also involves us taking up our crosses. I'm trying to decide whether I want to get on my soapbox again. Here's one of the things that we we need to be careful about. And you've heard pastor. I'm probably joining pastor on this soapbox. Easy believism. That just says, if I just say a prayer, if I just come to an altar, that's enough. But if there's been a true change in your heart, if you truly have been born again, you're going to show some signs. Doesn't mean you're perfect. None of us are perfect. But you have a real desire to follow Jesus. He says he took up his cross You have a desire to take up your cross. It's not that you're earning anything. It's just that you've been employed in the family business. Paul put it like this. If we're going to reign with Christ, 
we must be ready to suffer with him as well. Now, for us here in America, that may be a difficult concept because, let's just face it, y'all, we are spoiled. Let's just be real. We get mad if somebody look at us the wrong way because we prayed over our food. We think we're being persecuted because somebody maybe talked about us. They called you Holy Roller or something like that. But let's go to places like Iran, North Korea, China. They know what it means to take up their cross and follow Jesus. Pastors there are jailed just for praying with somebody. Just for teaching the word of God. When they go to jail, many of them are tortured for their witness for Christ. And eventually, some of them even die. But they're ready. And the reason why they're ready, number one, because of what Christ has done for them. Number two, what Christ is doing through them. And number three, for the promise of reigning with him. That's why in the book of Philippians, Paul talks about, and let's read this, because Let's show you Paul's attitude all about this. Philippians chapter 2. Actually, chapter 3, I'm sorry. Listen to these words. Listen to Paul's attitude. Philippians 3, starting at verse 1. I didn't give you this either, Richard. It says, finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. For me to write the same things to you is not tedious, but for you it is safe. It says, beware of dogs, beware of evil workers, beware of the mutilation. It says, for we are the circumcision who worship God in the spirit, rejoice in Christ Jesus, and have no confidence in the flesh. Paul is referring to what he called Judaizers. Those who thought that if you were saved, you needed to go back to some of the Jewish things, get circumcised and all that kind of thing. Verse 4, though I also might have confidence in the flesh, if anyone else thinks he may have confidence in the flesh, I more so. Circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, concerning the law of Pharisee, Concerning zeal, persecuting the church. Concerning the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. In other words, he said, if anybody has reason to brag, I do. But in verse 7, but what things were gained to me, these I have counted loss for Christ. Yet indeed, I also count all things lost for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith, that I may know him in the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to his death. If by any means my eight, I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Let me translate this for you, for you guys. Paul so wanted to be identified with Christ. Paul was willing to suffer whatever it took. Because he understood the more I suffer, the more I'm identified with my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, what I just said If anyone said that to you, you might think they was crazy. Is this person a glutton for punishment? No, Paul wasn't a glutton for punishment. He just understood that whatever I have to do, whatever I have to go through, for the cause of Christ, I'm willing to do it. Because the more I do for him, the greater the resurrection and reward I will have when I'm raised with him. But see, the kind of, to have that kind of attitude, you got to take up your cross. 
You've got to take up your cross. And you've got to understand the price that is involved. And for each one of us, it's different. We may, in America, may not be required to suffer death for the cause of Christ. But you might lose a job. You might lose a home. I've talked to people who've taken up their cross for Christ and have lost family members. Whatever the cost, you're willing to pay it because of what Christ has done for us. I have a whole lot more, but I'm going to stop right here. Because I think we're going to end. This is a good place to end. Stand to your feet.